Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hey everybody, welcome back. We're about to get into some of the most exceptional chapters found anywhere in Scripture, and certainly some of the most critical chapters of the Book of Mormon. Mosiah 11-17 through 17 are generally known as the Abinadi chapters, but really they are about more than just one person. Abinadi, the protagonist here, is definitely a central figure, but he's really a placeholder for something greater as is the antagonist, Zenith's son, King Noah. And it's critical, as we study their interaction, that we keep that in mind. We want to find out what they represent. You'll get sick of me saying that the Book of Mosiah is Mormon's effort to set the stage for the rest of his record, and the relationship between Abinadi and Noah, sometimes contrasting and sometimes overlapping, will carry on well past their respective deaths, and drive Mormon's narrative forward. Every now and then, throughout this section of the Book of Mormon, you'll hear me use the word prophetic, and I'm going to be using it in a slightly differing way than we are used to. There's nothing wrong with how we generally use the word, but it doesn't always work with examples that we find in Scripture. Let me demonstrate this for you. One phrase that pops up in the church today is prophetic priority. It refers to a vision that the president of the church, the prophet, has for the direction of the church, the efforts of its members, and the allocation of church resources. It assumes that the vision is revealed or inspired by the Lord, and therefore, it moves the institution of the church towards specific outcomes, sometimes requiring shifts in policy and or practice. Using the full name of the church would be an example of one of President Nelson's prophetic priorities. How President Nelson is being prophetic in this example is similar to, but also distinct, from how I'll be using this word to refer to figures like Abinadi. It's similar because both President Nelson and Abinadi are being inspired and directed by the Lord, but it's different because President Nelson is being inspired to lead the massive, multinational institution of the church while Abinadi is being inspired to push against the powerful institutions of his time. Now, President Nelson can and has been prophetic in the same way that Abinadi was, and Book of Mormon prophets were prophetic in similar ways that President Nelson is, but I'm going to highlight the distinctions more than the similarities, and there's a reason for that. Prophets haven't always been presidents. Sometimes prophets have been outcasts or wanderers, coming in disguise because they were despised by the majority of the Lord's covenant people. Many prophets came and went without an organized group of followers or access to government leaders or any substantial worldly means to carry out the task the Lord assigned to them. Some prophets were high priests of religious bodies with priestly functions and recognized authority, but others lived on the margins and were treated with suspicion and even fear. Some prophets are men, some prophets are women. Some bring good news and loving reassurance. Some bring good news in the form of harsh criticisms and prophecies of destruction. Isaiah was commanded to prophesy in order to close the ears of the people and to seal up his prophecies so that only future generations could access them. The Old Testament prophet Hosea was commanded to marry a prostitute 
as a way to act out God's love toward an unfaithful Israel. Basically, people are really diverse and really complicated, and the way that the Lord uses people prophetically is just as diverse and just as complicated, and we need to become accustomed to understanding them that way. In fact, there's a real risk in not seeing this. Let's take Joseph Smith for example. When I was young, I saw the same depictions of Joseph Smith that all of you did. He was always shown to be handsome, clean-cut, like an ideal missionary but in the 19th century clothing. It was always as if he emanated light in paintings, and in videos he spoke like you would imagine a quote-unquote spiritual or wise person to speak. The image that I had of Joseph was inspiring and deeply sacred to me. I remember going to Palmyra, New York when I was 16 and purchasing a replica first edition Book of Mormon from Grannon's bookstore and feeling holier just by holding that book, in part because I knew that I looked a little bit more like Joseph. And when I read that replica first edition, it felt more sacred because I knew that I was looking at a replica to the original typesetting, formatting, and binding. This all might sound a little silly, but my trip to Palmyra is still one of the most impactful experiences of my youth. And my replica first edition Book of Mormon, I now have a more expensive version that is actually closer to the original in construction, is still one of my favorite editions. I still love to hold it. It's an aesthetically powerful experience for me. It didn't take long for my understanding of Joseph to get more complicated though. Soon after I returned from Palmyra, I read an amazing biography about Joseph Smith called Rough Stone Rolling by a man named Richard Bushman. It's still the premier biography about Joseph Smith, and it changed everything for me. I actually ended up going to a graduate program in Mormon studies established by Richard Bushman, and it really all started with this biography, Rough Stone Rolling. Joseph, it turns out, wasn't always floating three feet above the ground in lotus position with light coming out of his eyes. He was an undereducated hick from the sticks. He had a temper. He'd get in fights well into adulthood. He did strange things like try and find treasure using seer stones. And to put it mildly, he had a really, really complex understanding of marriage. And he was also very selective of who he told about it and when. Now, some people really struggle when they first learn about some of the things that I learned when I read Rough Stone Rolling as a 16-year-old. I didn't, and I don't really know why. Maybe it's because I was young and my ideas about the world were still very fluid. Maybe it's because I had a brilliant mother who I could openly discuss questions with and who never claimed to know all of the answers. It could have been because I also had access to some of the most brilliant people in the church at BYU-Hawaii. And they served as an example to me of how you could think critically through complicated issues and be an even more committed disciple of Jesus Christ because of it. All of that and more had a huge impact on me. But I get why some people do struggle. When someone has an image of what a prophet is, especially when that image is the constantly luminous Joseph Smith, and you discover things that don't fit that image, Either the image has to change or it's going to break. Oftentimes what we refer to as a crisis of faith could be better described as a crisis of expectation. Things aren't what we have come to expect and now there's a conflict and if that conflict doesn't get reconciled, it can feel catastrophic. 
So it's important that we engender a more accurate expectation of what makes a profit from the beginning. I don't know President Nelson, but I promise you that he isn't an automaton. He's a person, and while I can't list all of his weaknesses or mistakes that he's made, I begin with the assumption that because he is human, all of that is just baked in. And knowing that has actually helped me to find inspiration in the lives of the prophets. When Elder Holland spoke about struggling with his own mental health, that inspired me. When prophets speak of the loss they've experienced, I love them more for it. When Elder Worthland stood at the pulpit in General Conference a few years back and started to shake with the burden of age, and then the then Elder Nelson came to support his friend, both men will always stay with me as an example of Christ-like love. I aspire to wearing out my life for the Lord in the same way that I witnessed Elder Worthland wearing out his. I aspire to stand with the vulnerable as I saw then Elder Nelson do. If God can work through his only begotten son and the tax collector or the prostitute or the leper or my ancestors who practiced plural marriage or the hot-headed Joseph Smith, well, I think he might be able to work through me. All right, that was a really long way to introduce what I'm talking about when I say prophetic. If you can remember from before that digression, it's about being inspired to push against powerful institutions. And this brings us to talking about what King Noah represents, which is, of course, the powerful institution of the state. In this case, it'll be the kingdom, but the form that government takes is less important than the government power itself. We've said before that the Nephite government will go through major shifts with each new book in the Book of Mormon, but I think that Mormon still wants us to contrast the prophets and eventually the church with whatever government it has to operate with. These are his two main characters going forward. Sometimes they will conflict, sometimes they will overlap, and at points, one or the other will be so powerful that it will essentially eliminate its counterpart. Abinadi and Noah is a story that sets the stage for all of the stories that follow. Wow, that was long-winded. Hopefully you found some value in it. I'll try and be more concise with the rest of the chapter, which is Mosiah 10, by the way. So let's get after it with verses 1 through 19. Noah probably takes over for his father around 160 BC, and Mormon immediately lets us know that he is a very different kind of king. Zenith's faults were that he was overzealous for the covenant and that he got trapped in a 400-year-old conflict. That can happen to the best of us. Zenith was a great king. Noah's faults, on the other hand, are that he walks after the desires of his own heart, and he had many wives and concubines, and he did cause his people to commit sin and to do that which was abominable in the sight of the Lord. Yea, and they did commit whoredoms and all manner of wickedness. Goodness gracious! Remember how Zenith valued the labor of women as contributors to society? Noah has now used his power to devalue those same women, to oppress them, and to turn them into objects to fulfill his own perverse desires. If we think back to the book of Jacob, Jacob had to deal with men like Noah, and he spoke in no uncertain terms about what the effects of their violence against women would be. Destruction. On top of his oppression of women, he heavily taxed his people and hoarded and concentrated the wealth of his nation to support himself, his wives, and his priests. Thereby, 
completely shifting the basic functions of society from supporting the people in their efforts to care for their families and live according to the covenant to the elevation of an elite, wealthy, and wicked few who could use their positions to just gain more wealth and power, thereby perpetuating inequality. Mormon says that this was a coordinated effort, beginning with the removal of the priests consecrated by Zenith and the installation of a new priestly class, whose primary function, it seems, was to support Noah's wicked corruption. Now, the verses that follow are a little complex. Mormon tells us that Noah and the other elites were supported in their laziness and in their idolatry and in their whoredoms by the taxes which King Noah had put upon his people. Thus did the people labor exceedingly to support iniquity. We might ask why the people put up with being forced to labor exceedingly to support the iniquity of Noah, his wives, and his priests. How could such a small number of people so effectively control a larger group of people against their own interests? Mormon continues, Yea, and they, that is the people, also became idolatrous, because they were deceived by the vain and flattering words of the king and priests, for they did speak flattering things unto them. To us we clearly see the exploitation because we trust Mormon's interpretation of the situation. But what if everyone who we are supposed to trust, or who's supposed to be teaching us how to follow the commandments, are using their positions to deceive? Things get muddy really quickly. A little later, we'll see some indication of the type of flattery that they were using to deceive the people. Not to get too far ahead of Mormon, but for now, we'll say that it's possible Noah and his priests wanted his people to believe that they had fulfilled the prophecies of establishing the kingdom of God and that Noah himself was the promised king. But we'll get into that later on. Whatever the form of flattery, it was effective enough for the people to buy into the wickedness and to begin to value the worship of things over the worship of God, even if it meant that their lives were made more difficult because of it. We learn that Noah ordered a major building project to show off the excessive wealth of the ruling class. This building project also included a series of watchtowers so that he could monitor what was going on throughout his land. Maybe this was for the sake of guarding against external threats like another Lamanite invasion, but it also could have been a means of monitoring the people and protecting against a possible rebellion. Mormon rounds off this section by reiterating the wickedness of the king and his priests. They were more interested in partying than governing, in riotous living than holiness, in exploiting the fruits of the people for their own excess than putting those fruits to work in sustaining and nourishing the people. My wife and I just finished the Hunger Games movies, and this makes me think of a really poignant part. If you aren't familiar with the story, it's about a nation broken up into districts, and each of those districts produces something like coal or cotton or technology or whatever, and all of those efforts of the districts go towards supporting the excessive wealth of those living in a place called the capital. Anyways, the part I'm thinking about is when two teenagers from one of the poorest districts find themselves at a party in the capital. Obviously, there's all kinds of food there and delicacies, and these teenagers are just overwhelmed, and they get full eating all of this food, and they can't try it all. Then somebody offers them a drink that will make them throw up so that they could go on eating. It's a powerful moment. It contrasts the desperation of those living in poverty with the useless excess of the wealthiest. 
One group is concerned about survival. The other group is consumed with entertaining themselves. That seems to be what we are seeing here in the book of Mosiah. Following Mormon's exposition of the lavishness of Noah's court, Mormon briefly shifts in verses 16 through 19 to denote that things with the Lamanites are still tense, and there is occasional violence between the Zenophites and the Lamanites. The most important detail here is found in verses 18 and 19. Noah's armies experienced some success against the Lamanites, and because of this great victory, Mormon says, they were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. They did boast in their own strength, saying that their fifty could stand against thousands of the Lamanites. And thus they did boast, and did delight in blood, and the shedding of the blood of their brethren, and this because of the wickedness of their king and priests. On top of everything else, this should be setting off alarm bells in your mind. The people under Zenith weren't perfect, but they were always sure to go to battle in, quote, the strength of the Lord. Now, under Noah, it's all about their own strength, and this is the danger of idolatry. You take upon you the nature of the thing that you worship. If you worship Christ, you'll become more and more Christ-like. If you worship your own desires, you'll be more and more self-involved and self-assured, even if it means your destruction. We, the reader, can see the crisis on the horizon. We know that the exploitation of women, the poor, and the boasting that essentially amounts to a denial of our dependency on Christ all leads to destruction. But to the people on the ground, they still think that they are chosen and living in the kingdom of God. So the Lord puts them on alert in verses 20 through 29 by sending a prophet named Abinadi. We don't get much about Abinadi's background, and throughout Abinadi chapters, We'll try and glean as much biographical information about Abinadi as we can, but at this point, all that Mormon tells us is that he was a man among the people. And Abinadi's message wasn't going to win him any popularity contests among those people. Thus saith the Lord, he's commanded to say, Woe be unto this people, for I have seen their abominations and their wickedness and their whoredoms, and except they repent, I will visit them in mine anger. And it shall come to pass that except this people repent and turn unto the Lord their God, they shall be brought into bondage, and none shall deliver them, except it be the Lord, the Almighty God. Yea, and it shall come to pass that when they shall cry unto me, I will be slow to hear their cries. Yea, I will suffer them that they should be smitten by their enemies. And except they repent in sackcloth and ashes and cry mightily to the Lord their God, I will not hear their prayers." Neither will I deliver them out of their affliction. Pretty blunt, right? Easy. Repent, or the results of your wickedness will be that you're left to your own strength, just like you wanted. And you're not going to like it. But guess what people who are convinced of their own awesomeness don't like to hear? That they are actually not as awesome as they think. And Abinadi may have already been well known among the people, but it doesn't sound like he was one of the people with power who was in charge by the government with the care of the people. So why should they listen to him when he tells them that they need to change? Would we listen to him? King Noah especially took exception to Abinadi's words. And this is pretty rich. He says, Who is Abinadi that I and my people should be judged of him? Or... Who is the Lord that shall bring upon my people such great afflictions? That is cringy stuff right there. Mormon's final description of the situation in this chapter is that the eyes of the people were blinded 
Therefore they hardened their hearts against the words of Abinadi, and they sought from that time forward to take him. And King Noah hardened his hearts against the word of the Lord, and he did not repent of his evil doing. I have a hard time believing that Mormon included these stories just so that we could all sit around and talk about how self-absorbed Noah and his people have become. There's got to be some relevancy in here for us. Is there a chance that we as a society share in some of the blindness that comes from a constant desire to entertain ourselves in our own affluence? Are we ever dependent on our own strength, or do we always realize our dependency on the Lord for deliverance? Doesn't our society have a problem with the exploitation of women as objects of desire or with the concentration of wealth? Let's not make the mistake of thinking that the scriptures are only talking about us when things are good and only talking about other people when things aren't so good. I think that Abinadi's message will be remarkably relevant to us, and his testimony of Christ can be revolutionary in our lives. So let's read him carefully and try and stay humble. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.